Well, I don't know about you guys, but I was sitting here thinking um, as Pastor Santa was praying, and uh, as hard as it is some mornings uh, for me to wake up and uh, go to church, uh, I'm really thankful that God has given me a good church family in the various stages of my life, um, and that he has put in a, a desire to me to be at church, a commitment to be here, because being able to come here and be exposed to God's word and to sing and to pray and to be with other people, um, no matter what, you know, where you guys find yourselves, that, that helps us to recalibrate ourselves to God. It helps us to refocus on the things that are most important in our life, and it helps us to really see once again Jesus for who he truly is. And we're going to look at that today here in the Transfiguration, seeing Jesus, uh, just like the disciples did. But I'm, I'm thankful for that, and I pray that you guys are thankful too. Um, even, even if it's hard getting here on a Sunday morning, or it's cold, or you're sleepy, or tired, whatever, it's like God's given us these things to feed us, to feed us spiritually, to grow us. And so um, I'm just thankful for that, and um, thankful as we come uh, to His Word. If you guys want to take your Bibles out as a uh, We're turning over to Matthew 17, Uh, it's page 694 in the Blue Bibles if you have that, but just a brief review, Uh, so far in Matthew, uh, we are are traveling through a little over halfway, Um, I remember back in my seminary days, them talking about the the definitive turn in the Gospels, or the hinge um, through kind of which we go from one section to another, and, and they identify that as Peter's confession, and from then on, it is looking forward to the Passion Week. And so, uh, Pastor Santo read this last week, 1621 uh, in Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so, Jesus is setting his eyes as one of the the gospel writers says, setting his eyes, fixing his eyes to the cross. And that's what's happening now as we look towards the transfiguration. So why don't you guys stand with me and we'll read Matthew 17, uh, the first 13 verses. And hear God's word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led uh, led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. 
In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Thank God for his perfect and timely word to us. May he bless the preaching and listening of it. Let's go ahead and sit down. I want you guys to think for a moment as we open up. Think about uh, the idea of preparing. Preparing for maybe a battle. Maybe preparing for a time of suffering. Maybe preparing for a big athletic event. And, uh, or, or just some other big thing, big moment in your life. Well, for me, uh, a lot of times when I think about topics like this, movie scenes pop in my head. And uh, I, I like to watch war movies. Um, I enjoy watching kind of all the, all the well-known ones like Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, and uh, Band of Brothers, or The Pacific. And I, I really enjoy all of these uh, war movies, um, not to, to glorify war itself, but because of some of the things that I get to, to see people wrestle through in that time and the rawness of war and the reality of that. But you'll, you'll see that as you watch some of these movies, that, for example, kind of before D-Day and Saving Private Ryan, you see these guys as they're in kind of their boat, their ship, and they're heading towards the shore, and then they're preparing mentally, right? That all kinds of feelings are going on. Maybe it's anguish. Maybe it's just flat out being scared. Maybe it's uh, physical um, stuff that's going on. They're just shaking uncontrollably. Or maybe in a different scene, a different movie, in a, in a, a war scene, they're preparing mentally. They're thinking about what will happen, what their mission is, what they're supposed to be doing. But each and every time they are preparing before they enter into this intense physical, mental, emotional battle. And I think when facing an extreme circumstance or facing a battle where where our lives are at stake or where something big is at stake in our, our life, maybe an extreme act of suffering, it's only normal for us to want to prepare for that event to prepare in in various ways. Maybe we each have our own way in which we prepare for big things, but it's only normal for us to want to prepare mentally or emotionally or physically for that big event. And maybe you guys can think of an example from your own life. But today, we're going to look at how Jesus prepares his disciples, his core guys, for the suffering that he will endure. And that's what we're looking at today through what is commonly called the transfiguration. He's told them the suffering that he is about to undergo. He is clear about that in the Gospels. He's saying, I must go suffer. And as Pastor Santa talked about last week, he also says to them, you must too go suffer. I must suffer and you must suffer. And so what he does is he prepares them through a special event commonly called the transfiguration. And so we're going to take a look at this through the eyes of Matthew as he records it for us in chapter 17. So let's look at the transfiguration first, the event of the transfiguration and its purpose, and then we're going to look at kind of how it applies to us in our lives. So we read from the text a few few minutes ago that Jesus takes the core of his disciples up to the top of the mountain. And we have Peter, James, and John. Right? He says he took them, the text says on verse 1, by themselves. So right away we know that something very special is happening with his disciples. 
He is taking those, those three that are commonly experiencing the best of the best or, or getting the best of the best of Jesus and the interactions with him. It's his core, it's his team, and taking them alone to the top of a mountain. And then Jesus does something pretty amazing right before their eyes. Verses 2 and 3, it says this, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So from the outset, uh, sometimes preachers go different ways in how they go about trying to get across their main idea. But today, I just want to give you kind of the big idea of what I think as I wrestled through the text, what's going on here. And then we're going to kind of show that as we walk through this story. And so listen to this as we talk about the main idea of the text, okay? Here it is. Let me read it for you. The transfiguration is about Jesus preparing his disciples and drilling into their heads that before being the triumphant Messiah King, Jesus had to be the humble, suffering servant. Okay, so let me read that one more time. This is what the transfiguration is about, I think. It's about Jesus preparing his disciples and drilling into their heads that before being the triumphant Messiah King, that he would be one day. Jesus had to be the humble, suffering servant. All right, back to the text here. We just read that uh, Jesus was transfigured. I don't know about you guys, but when I came across that term, even though I've grown up in the church, I think about that term and I'm like, what's going on here? Um, I'm not much of a fan of, uh, of sci-fi movies, um, I think maybe Star Wars is kind of the closest I get to uh, enjoying uh, any kind of sci-fi movie. But one of the things I was thinking about, I was like, does Jesus kind of morph into Moses and then Elijah and then kind of back to himself here? Like maybe something you would see on a weird sci-fi movie. Is that what's going on kind of with the term transfiguration? Or did Jesus himself uh, transform or morph into something else? What's going on here? Because as you read it, it's kind of like, uh, I, this doesn't really happen normally in my life, people being transfigured. This is a special event. What's going on? Well, we're given some further description and kind of some insight right here in the text itself. Verse 2 says this, His face shone like the sun, and also his clothes became white as light. And so from the Bible here, we're given some further descriptions of what is going on here, but still it's kind of a little bit hazy for us. One commentator, he talks about this word transfigured, and he says it indicates an actual change of form, not a mere change of appearance or a masking of his ordinary appearance. So this helps us a little, I think, but while studying this, I was still wrestling through this, wrestling through this, saying, God, you know, I know this is supposed to be a really special event. I know that this is, you know, this awesome, unique event for these three disciples but what's really going on here? And how do I describe it to people on Sunday? And as I wrestled through that and I prayed about that, commentator, one commentator kept bringing up this idea of God's glory in this event. And I thought that was a good place to camp out, God's glory. He said that the Father transfigured the Son that we might know exactly who he is, how fully he deserves our worship. So I don't know that anybody can fully describe or explain what happened at the transfiguration. The Bible gives us some things as far as what Jesus did and how his appearance changed and how he was transfigured. 
But I think the main point here for us is that this is a, a, a time in which God reveals the glory of Jesus to the disciples in a very unique way. I don't know that I can explain it much more than that, but God is revealing his greatness, his, his majesty, his glory to these disciples in a unique way and preparing them for something that would come. But besides Jesus being transfigured, there are two more important things that happen while on top of this mountain. And we want to look at them real quick. The first is this. Who else joins him on the top of the mountain? Well, we know from the text that it was Elijah and Moses. So besides being kind of two powerhouse figures in the Old Testament, we know kind of their stories generally. We know um, who they are. But why are they so important? One pastor kind of helps us talk about what, what they represent. He says this, They represent the law and the prophets. Both the law and the prophets predict the coming of the deliverer. He's talking about Jesus there. Both labored to deliver God's people, so both foreshadowed the work of Jesus. Both had an unusual departure or exodus from this world. So they would have been to the Jews of that day, to the people of that day, kind of like the rock stars, the movie stars. They would have been very well known. Their figures, who they are, what they represent. They were important people for the, the people of that time. And so when Peter and James and John experienced this, they're like, oh, this is really special. This is really special. We are in the presence of people like not only Jesus, but Moses and Elijah. And they represent what God has been doing all throughout the beginning of time, throughout the whole Old Testament. So it kind of adds just the extra punch and extra specialness to this event. And so what I'm trying to do is to kind of help inform us to say, this really is a special thing that God is doing. Even though we can't understand maybe all the ins and outs of it, this is really special for Peter, James, and John, and consequently for us as we read about it. The last important thing that happened on top of that mountain, we find in verses 5 and 6, if you'll look there with me. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. And so not only do they get to experience Jesus being transfigured, but they also get to experience Moses and Elijah on top of that mountain talking with Jesus, who represent all of what God did, in the Old Testament, but also they get to hear the voice of God the Father speaking. I mean, think about that. God the Father speaking verbally, audibly, out loud. And he says three things. He says, this is my son. It's my beloved son. So he loves his son. He's affirming him with whom I am well pleased. He's proud of him. And he says this, listen to him. Listen to him. Maybe as you're hearing this, you're thinking back to another familiar event. Can anybody think about the familiar event in which these things were said by God the Father? Well, it goes back to Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism, these same things were being said. This is my son, who I'm well pleased. One of the commentators, Howard Voss, he he comments here saying, the father once more fully placed his seal of approval on the son. 
for the benefit of the son who was about to undergo intense suffering and for the disciples who would share the trauma of that moment and who was soon would lose the blessing of his physical presence. So here he points out that it's, a, it's, it's actually also a really big encouragement to Jesus who was about to go to the cross, who was about to set his face to suffer for people like you and me who broke God's commands, who said, God, forget you. I want to go my own way. Who would, who, would, who would go to the cross for those people. And he is preparing not only the disciples, but he's preparing the son by encouraging him, by telling him that he loves him, that he's proud of him. I didn't pick this up at first when I was studying this, and this commentator was really helpful. I was only thinking about it in perspective of the disciples. He's preparing the disciples for the suffering that he will endure and that they will endure. But here, importantly, it also points out that this event actually prepares Jesus too. Jesus himself is being prepared for the suffering that he will undergo. How good it is that the Father would give him that encouragement. And so we have this important event where we kind of have a one, two, three punch, right? Jesus being transfigured, Moses and Elijah being there, and then the voice of God the Father saying the things that he did. And so it's no wonder why the disciples, they respond in the way in which they did, right? If we were there, we probably would do the same thing. Uh, Peter in verse 5 basically says, hey, let's make camp here. Let's stay here. It's good for us to be up here. I don't want to go back down the mountain. Let's stay right here. Maybe that's kind of how we respond when we have a mountaintop experience with the Lord. Let's stay right here. I don't want to go back home from this retreat. I don't want to go back home from, from this you know, sermon or from this service or whatever it is. God is here. And to a large extent, that was true. And in verse 6, all the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. Can you imagine God himself coming in the cloud, the voice of God speaking, and you hearing this, you're witnessing this event. They were terrified, so much so that Jesus had to come over in a loving and kind way, and he, he put his hand out, and the text says that he touched them. And what did he say? Rise and have no fear. Of course they would have fear because God the Father is there in their midst. But he said, rise and have no, no fear. So I hope that we're starting to get a picture of what is going on here in the transfiguration. Through, through my feeble attempt to explain it, we're seeing God's glory in a unique way. But I think there's a question here that we also need to ask of the text. Why? Why this event? What's going on here? The question that every, every parent loves to hear, why? 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 You know, when my first daughter, uh, uh, Hannah Grace, began to learn that question, it's kind of like, man, I, w- I liked it better when you didn't talk too much, you know? When you were babbling, I couldn't understand you. But we ask why. Why did Jesus bring them to the top of the mountain to witness this amazing event? Let's look back at the context. Remember where we've been in, in Matthew's gospel. We're about halfway through in Matthew's gospel. We've just passed. We talked about the hinge, which is Peter's confession. We're taking a definitive turn towards the cross, towards the suffering. Jesus is taking steps away from his public ministry and towards Golgotha, towards the crescendo of the cross, the Passion Week, the suffering that we'll soon celebrate here in Easter time. 
And last week we talked about this. I read it in the beginning, 1621. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be raised, or sorry, and be killed and be raised. So we're seeing here that there is a big turn in the Gospel of Matthew. We are heading towards the Passion Week. Jesus said, I will suffer, you will suffer as well. Take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus, he is saying he will come back triumphantly. He will raise from the dead. But first, his kingdom will advance through suffering. And I think that this helps us answer the why question. Because the transfiguration was primarily preparatory for these disciples of what would soon take place. Jesus wanted to prepare them. He wanted to drill in their heads, this must happen. And time and time again, they didn't understand. I said, you know, when, when Pastor Santo talked about last week, Peter's standing up and saying, no, that's not going to happen that way. And what does he say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. It's going to happen this way. It has to happen this way. Jesus has to go to the cross. He has to be the humble, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And Jesus is going to make this clear in verses 9 through 13 in our text today. We're not going to dive into it too much for time's sake, but it would take kind of a few minutes. But basically, there's just a basic comparison going on between Elijah. And we figure out that when he talks about Elijah and Jesus, he's really talking about John the Baptist because it talks about that in verse 13. It's a bit confusing. We don't have a lot of time to go into it. But essentially, the important thing is that Jesus is saying that the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And Jesus says, I will prepare you for this. If you remember our opening illustration when um, we were talking about when you think you're going through or about to go through a time of intense suffering or a time of intense battle or warfare, that we naturally want to prepare. We naturally want to prepare our people, our inner core for what is about to go on. And I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is bringing them for rebuke, together for rebuke, for correction, for, for a renewed perspective of what is about to happen and what is about to come. He's encouraging them and emboldening them to go and to follow him. But so what does this mean for us? As Christians in our day, what are we supposed to learn from this transfiguration? You know, honestly, I I kind of had a hard time putting this sermon together this week. You know, sometimes when you study a text, you'll study it and it just kind of falls out for you. You know, you have a a great beginning, you got an idea where you're going, you you know, you got your three points, whatever it is, and boom, there it is. But I studied this and I wrestled through it over and over again, and I really was, had a hard time making the, the transition from what does it mean for the disciples And then what does it mean for us today? Because what we have to do is we have to go to the Bible. We have to understand in its original context, what does it mean? Why did God do this for the disciples and for the original context, the original audience? And then we have to jump over and say, okay, what does it mean for us today? And sometimes that question is hard to answer, but it's an important one, right? It's an important one to answer in our study of the Bible because this is not just for information's sake, right? God wants us to take this to heart and to apply it in our lives, and it's supposed to transform everything about us. And so how does this text on the transfiguration transform us? And how does it apply to our daily lives? Well, let's take a a look at a few possible applications that I think um, 
come from this text. Number one, I think the transfiguration it helps us to develop a further uh, biblical theology, or specifically a big word, Christology, or a theology about Jesus. It teaches us something about who Jesus is, who he was, what he must do. When I was being taught to study God's word on kind of a deeper level in college, we, um, we were taught this simple process, OIA, observation, interpretation, application. The A obviously stood for application. And one of the things we were taught is that when you think about how to apply God's word, you need, one question you need to ask is, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about God? What is this passage teaching me about God? For the Bible is primarily about God. Yes, it has instructions about our lives and it has things as far as here's what glorifies God, here's what doesn't, here's how to set up a church, here's how to live in a fallen world. Yes, but it's primarily about God. What does this text teach us about God? Well, I think it has something very clear to teach us about Jesus. And and it really, I think, really wants to expand our understanding of who he is and what he came to do. And we've said it multiple times already, but it's this. Before being the triumphant Messiah King, Jesus had to humble himself and be the suffering servant. He would be the triumphant Messiah King. And even the audience there knew that that day. But what they didn't get, and what's hard for us to get sometimes, is that he had to be the suffering servant first. He had to come and to be the suffering servant. And this is, like every other fact or, or information in the Bible, meant to lead us to deeper worship. I think the transfiguration here, like Pastor Doriani said in our quote earlier, it is showing us God's glory in a very unique way. Who he is, his greatness, how he deserves to be fully worshipped by us. See, adoration and praise is at the center of who we are as Christians. That's why we come on Sunday morning and we worship God through song and through reading of the scriptures. We adore him and say, God, how great you are. Because that's at the center of our lives as Christians. It's not about praising us. It's not about praising our skills and our talents. It's about praising God. And what the transfiguration does, I think, is it encourages us to say, this is who your God is. Worship him. Worship him. So I want to encourage you guys today, maybe it's as you're, you're taking some time in prayer, maybe you're journaling some or thinking, taking a walk. Praise God that he was willing to humble himself to suffer before being the triumphant Messiah King. Praise God, thank God that he was willing to come and to suffer. He humbled himself. God humbled himself to come to the earth to suffer in your place and in mine. And if Jesus didn't do that, where would we be? We'd be lost, dead in our sins, without hope in this world. We would be left facing the wrath of God for all of eternity. We would all be destined for hell. We would all be destined for eternity, separated from the best thing that there ever is and ever was and ever could be, God himself. And this text reminds us that Jesus was willing to humble himself so that we may have a right relationship with God. So this first one is, first application is just information about who Jesus is that transfers or translates to worship of Jesus. So I encourage you today to take some time to think about that, to meditate on that. 
The second uh, application, I think, is one of encouragement. You know, when we think about the Bible and a particular text in the Bible, we've got to think about it in the larger context of the whole storyline of Scripture from beginning to end. And we've got to know that though Jesus suffered and died, he was also raised. He was raised from the dead and now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we need to be deeply encouraged that what Jesus said would, would come true, it did come true. And that our trust in King Jesus would be deepened because of that. Think about it. We get a unique point of view on the transfiguration that the disciples, they didn't have, right? On this, on this side of redemptive history, we know that Jesus went to the cross. We know that he was the suffering servant. We know that he died on that cross and that he raised again three days later. And that he is seated at at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. That he is the triumphant Messiah King. And we get to see that. And I think we get to be encouraged this morning that we serve that one true King who was the suffering servant in which he was being prepared um, in this transfiguration and preparing his disciples for that suffering. But he was also the triumphant Messiah King. It is that King who loves us who protects us, who guides us, who walks with us through life in the good times, in the bad times, through the suffering. He's got this. It reminds us that he's got this. Whether we're worried about money or finances or or a lack of jobs, or whether we're worried about something going on in our family's life at large, or sickness, or other family problems, or anything else, we are reminded he is the triumphant Messiah King. He's got this. Our third one and final application is that the transfiguration helps us to know that he prepares us for our time of suffering in similar ways. Now, I think this one's a little bit more on the periphery um, kind of of the application, but I think it's still valid considering what's going on here in Matthew 17 and in the context before in which Pastor Santo preached and what will come after. We know that we are called to expect suffering That in this fallen world, in this life, suffering will happen. It's not a question of if, but when. When will we suffer for the name of Jesus? We know that we are called to take up our cross, as Santo preached on, denying ourselves and our our self-centered idolatries of comfort and pleasure and living for what makes us happy instead of what makes God happy. We're called to put that away. We're called to put that to death and to live for Jesus. We know that. But we're not left on our own to face it. We're not left on our own to face the suffering that we experience in this life. Left pulling ourselves by our own bootstraps saying, I've got this. I can do this. And Jesus is saying, clearly you can't. You can't do it. Jesus was very present in preparing his disciples to suffer and to experience his suffering as well. And I believe that the scriptures here and in other places point us to understand that he is doing the same thing with us today. He is preparing us to be present in our suffering. He is present in our suffering. And we are to be encouraged by the way that he handled the disciples and also the way that he handles us. Now I understand that, you know, and this is probably something that was going on in my own heart various times when I've read this text before. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, well, I know it's supposed to be encouraging, but 
I wasn't there with Peter and James and John. I, didn't, I wasn't there experiencing this. So how, how encouraging can the transfiguration actually be for me right now dealing with, you know, a family issue? Dealing with, you know, a death in the family? Dealing with financial problems? How, how encouraging can it really be that I can just sit there and read about what happened to Jesus? And that's an honest, that's an honest and a human response to uh, that question. But I th- also think it's a biblically wrong one. And this is what I mean. I want to I look at real quick. We looked at the first part of this as we prepared for worship today. But take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll look at something a little mind-blowing as we kind of come more to a close. So 2 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at this question of, is it really all that encouraging just to read a story about the transfiguration? Because Peter, James, and John, they got to experience it. They got to hear about it. They got to hear the voice of God the Father. Well, I think this text answers our question. So look uh, in verse 16, and, uh, and I'm going to read uh, just to the end of the passage for us. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we were told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. And I'll stop there. But, uh, you know, to answer the question, one commentator, he, he says, look, what's going on here is he's talking about the transfiguration. Peter is talking about what happened there when he heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So get what, say, get what Peter is saying here, though. He is saying that we have something more sure than that event there. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. I remember a friend teaching on this passage and he was talking about the craziness of what's going on here. If we understand that Peter is actually saying, I was there and I experienced it. I heard the voice of God the Father. I experienced this awesome event, but we have something more sure. We have something better better than an experience here in flesh and blood. I mean, that's like counterintuitive to us, right? We all say, no, God, I'll believe you and I'll follow you if I experience you, um, you know, parting the sea, or if I experience you, you know, miraculously healing my mom, or if I experience you right here, right now, and I get to talk to you. But Peter says that we have something more sure right here in the Bible. And so to answer that question, is it really all that encouraging? because I wasn't there. Peter says, yes, it is. It is all that encouraging. It is something that you can take to the bank that God says this happened and this is supposed to be encouraging to you in your time of suffering. It's supposed to be encouraging to you because it teaches you something about Jesus and about who he is and what he came to do. 
And so I think that, that God says, yes, in my word, there is a more sure, better promise than if we had been there for ourselves. And I pray for the grace for not only me, but also you to take that to heart, to take God's word seriously when it says this is more sure than if we had been there. How encouraging that is. He didn't have to take them up on the mountain and show them these things, but he did. He could have just said, I'm going to suffer and let's go do this and not give them any preparation whatsoever. He could have done that, but he prepared his disciples to suffer. And for his suffering, he loved them that much. He doesn't have to prepare us to suffer or to take up our cross, but he does because he loves us. See, Jesus came to this earth willingly. He submitted to the will of the Father. He said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go on this rescue mission. I'm going to be humbled and I'm going to be born of a baby, born of a virgin, born into poverty like an average man. I'm going to live a perfect life, which none of us can ever do, nor has anyone in human history ever done before. He said, I'm going to live the perfect life. I'm going to obey God every single time in my actions and in my thoughts and in everything. And then I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go to the cross for my people, for my people's sins. And I'm going to pay the penalty that they should have paid. I'm going to go to that cross and I'm going to take all of that suffering. I'm going to take all of that punishment from God the Father for all the sin of all of his people for all time. And I'm going to make good on that payment so that people like you and me, if we repent of our sins and put our faith in the finished work of Jesus, could have a right relationship with God, not only now, but forevermore. And that is the good news of the gospel. And I believe that's the good news of the transfiguration that he is showing us just another piece of his glory. He's showing us another piece of how great he is. He's giving us an experience that we didn't have in person, but he's given us an experience through his word, a more sure, a better experience of Jesus so that we may see him, that we may love him, that we may worship him, and that we may more fully walk with him today, the rest of this week, and for the rest of our lives. And so I pray that this was an encouragement as we looked at something like the transfiguration. Sometimes, you know, the stories in the scriptures are hard to understand. Sometimes they're hard to apply But everything that God has written for us in here is for our good and for his glory. And so I pray that you would take time along with me and and my family and the others in this church to take time today to worship this risen Christ, the one who suffered and and humbled himself to be the suffering servant before being the triumphant king. Let's pray. Father, as much as we talk about these things and, and explain them, God, we're never going to know what it was like to leave heaven in all of your glory and then be born as a baby, born of a woman just like every one of us, to enter into this world knowing that one day that you would suffer 
and die for the sins of, uh, of your people. We're not, we, we don't know what that, what that would be like. But slowly and surely, the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand the greatness of what you did, the glory of what you did. And through looking at something like the transfiguration, we see your glory in a unique way. We see how you prepared your disciples and consequently how you prepare us to suffer and for your suffering. You teach us about who you are as a king, one who would suffer and die and then be triumphant. God, I pray that you would please expand our understanding of you, our worship of you, our love for you, our obedience and following you and the things that you've called us to in your word. God, help us to love your word even more. Grant us further understanding and application of it in our lives this week. God, pray that you would comfort us. You would embolden us and empower us to take up our cross and to follow you daily. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done, all that you are and all that you continue to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday sermon.